Right now, we're just pleased with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court allowed some parts of Trump's revised travel ban to go into effect. We're going to have a very, very strict ban, and we're going to have extreme vetting. From six Muslim countries associated with terrorism. The point is that ban makes us less safe. This is a case about presidential power. No fear! Refugees are welcome here! No hate! No fear! Refugees are welcome here! You see it at the airports, you see it all over. It's working out very nicely. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. She's a noted historian with a unique view of the Trump administration. And he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with decades of experience reporting in Washington. And this is the Politics and History podcast that asks, what is happening? And has it happened before? Hi, Heather. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good week? You know, okay. I don't know. I felt like we got a break from investigations a little bit. That's always in the background of everybody's mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's, of course, why Trump hates it so very much. And is trying so desperately to get a, get away from it and claim it isn't really an issue. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of what phrase he would use. You know, just hearing Trump there saying this, this ruling by the Supreme Court on Monday uh, where they reinstated his travel ban uh, is very nice. I, I, I don't know. That seems wrong to me. And the Supreme Court, in this executive order that it is now affirming, that blocks immigrants and refugees from six Muslim-majority countries. That's the Trump travel ban. It's been shot down numerous times in lower courts, but the Supreme Court ruled that the ban could be applied to any immigrant from those six countries who does not have, and this is the phrase, credible, bona fide connection, bona fide, take your pick, to the United States. The court will hear this case in October, but for now, Trump is proclaiming a huge victory on this. My thoughts are many. First, about the phrase, a nation of immigrants. Boy, you know, I grew up with that. It was a thing of pride. Cornelia, my wife, it was an Irish emigre during some potato famine or other. Mine, a little man from Russia with a funny hat who slept on two chairs in the Lower East Side. These are heroes in our families. But suddenly, people like that are um, seen as a threat. Heather, are you surprised by the Supreme Court's decision in this case and by their partial reinstatement of the ban? I mean, is this a victory for Trump, really? Well, the shorter answer is no. The longer answer is no, I'm not at all surprised they took it up. It was a really clever thing to do in a sense because what it did is it bought time for tempers to cool. And it's not a victory. It's not a reinstatement of the entire ban. What it did was it said that if you had a bona fide reason to come to America, either because of family connections or some some connection to a university or to a job, that you were not going to be affected by this ban. And what that does is it removes the pressure points that had created such an outcry at the very beginning of this administration when the executive order was first signed. Mm -hmm. But the real question, it seems to me, that rises from this commentary from the Supreme Court, from Donald Trump, from the pushback against it, is the very central question of who is welcome in America. 
as you said. The real question here is not about today's news. It's not even really, in a sense, about what President Trump says about who is welcome in America. It's the central question of what is this nation? Is it a nation of immigrants, or is it a nation where we pick and choose the people that we want to have participate in our society? And that's very much on the table right now. Yeah, picking winners. Let us hear the voice of then-candidate Donald Trump announcing uh, his proposed Muslim ban in December 2015 after the San Bernardino, California shootings that killed 14 people. He has since walked this back. Let's hear. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on? We have a guest this week, which I'm very excited about, Morris Vogel. He's president of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum in New York, one of my favorites, and one of the real key resources, smart guys on the immigrant experience in the United States. Welcome, Morris. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ron and Heather. Morris, have we had a president? who's so firmly and directly targeted religion. Is there a precedent for that? Well, you know, what's interesting about the 20s is, as today, the laws are called National Origins Act. So it's certain nations. And the people who come from those nations back in the day would be be Jews or, or Catholic. The 1924 Act, the National Origins Act, obviously were directed... Uh, at Jews, as well as at Italian Catholics and Polish Catholics. So there's a religious feature to those laws. But what we're seeing today, the proposals today, are much more blatantly religious in their construction. The parallel I see between the the stuff we hear today about Muslims is just how virulent things were against Catholics, the attacks on the convents, the idea that the Pope was going to come take over America right up through the 1960 election. Uh, when JFK. Kennedy, yeah, JFK had to say he wasn't going to take his orders that from the Pope. That great West Virginia speech, that was crucial. Morris Heather, let's take a listen to some Muslims in America responding to President Trump's travel ban. You know, we Muslims, we haven't done anything. You know, we're part of the community. We contribute to the well-being of the community. We do expect these things happen in the United States. My heart was uh, broken when Mr. President labeled us as bad people. You know, I spent a great deal of time with Muslim emigres in two books that I wrote, uh, The 1% Doctrine in 2006 and The Way of the World in 2008. In that latter book, I tracked uh, a Muslim emigre from Pakistan and another one from Afghanistan as they made their way across America. You know, both of them were seeking a home in this country just exactly like my great-grandfather. I mean, it was just almost word for word. You know, and I and I, I heard from them how important it was, not just in terms of their journey, but in terms of the countries they left behind, Pakistan and Afghanistan, that America was the destination, the beacon, the place, if you could manage it, if you could get there, you could find a future. And I wonder now, if I could get them on the phone, and I'd love to, what they're feeling at this very moment 
Hey, Morris, looking back at the know-nothings of the 1850s, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, uh, you got the National Origins Act of 1924. Is there a common thread that links up nice and neat with today that you can discern? Not entirely, but close enough. It's the circumstances here that one has to look at and realize that in each of those moments, there is something going on on this side of the water that makes Americans anxious, that makes them confused about their future, that makes them lose confidence, that they've got a a place in a, a world that's changing. And this is a moment that looks as uncertain as the run-up to the Civil War, that looks as uncertain as the, the rise of industrialization. And that erosion, I hear that word confidence, the bleeding away of American confidence in our destiny, in us being a last best hope of mankind. Heather, what do you think of what Morris is saying? You and he are both historians. I'm surrounded by historians today. Aren't you lucky? I am. I feel great warmth. What do you what do you think about Morris's expressions and imputations? Well, here's what I would say, and and I wonder what you think about this, Morris, is that in each of those moments, I think you're absolutely right that the country is in real confusion, real chaos, and there's fear about what the future is going to look like. But each one of those moments comes out of a period when the regular guy, the little guy, looks around him and recognizes that he is no longer able to put enough money into his pocket to feel like he can feed his family and rise and prosper. The pattern that comes up again and again and again, including in the present moment, when, in fact, neoliberalism has rigged the system, and rather than turning against the guys who are rigging it, you turn against the Mexican guy who's working three jobs or the Muslim who's trying desperately to keep his, his store going. You know, what gets, let's get to present tense. You know, certainly in the last 15 to 20 years, presidents have pushed for immigration reform. You know, uh, President George W. Bush, you know, look, he wanted this to work and he was a Republican, didn't work. Then you have Barack Obama who represents in his presentation, a a citizen in a way of the world who's elected to our highest office. It was great hope under Obama that he'd lead immigration reform. He fails too. In in some ways, what you see is the uh uh-oh moment born of these structural issues of inequality, of so many Americans feeling left behind. They've been growing for decades. And it's creating a pushback. It's creating the fear. It's creating the sense of who is my enemy? Who's here to take my job? And I can't afford, in a way, the the large narrative that I was maybe taught in eighth grade civics. Yeah, that's fine for then. My life is different. That person's coming here after the little bit I have left. In all the periods we've looked at where there's a rise of nativism, you start with a a generalized anxiety in our own time. Uh, It's about a technological change and it's about globalization. You need someone to blame for it and the blame then falls upon the people who are relatively powerless, easily victimized, just seem different enough from us. In so much of this period, the Muslims uh, have ended up in a bit of a distinct category because of the issues of national security, certainly since 9-11. But in this time, the bond 
between the notion of Muslim and the notion of terrorism has been a very, very tight fit. Much of it by virtue of the actual strategies of jihadists, whether it's al-Qaeda or now ISIS. I mean, this is precisely their plan. I have looked at original documents of al-Qaeda. What do they say back in the late 1990s, before 9-11? What do they say? What we're going to do here is we are going to attack Western powers, i.e. the United States. What we're hoping for is that they overreach, demonize us, and show that these principles that are actually the core of the real strength, liberty, rule of law, a notion of justice, a notion of individual sovereignty, if we can show in their reaction that these principles at the core of their strength are brittle, are matters of convenience, power is convenience, then we will win. And right now, Morris, aren't we right in this place where we are playing beautifully into the hope-for strategy of so many of our jihadist enemies. Uh, I think that the jihadist strategy is proving to be a, a remarkably effective one in terms of undermining our sense of who we are. It's disheartening that so many Americans have uh, so little an optimistic sense of what we can achieve as a people together. And what we're missing then, what we need, is leadership that's rooted in our deepest values that tells us what we can do. Morris, let me bring up something else, which is part of the subtext as well. Many supporters of this travel ban will argue that Muslim immigrants today are different from past immigrants, that they don't want to assimilate. Does that process leading to eventual acceptance or assimilation? What does that generally look like for people? Because I think it's different for different people at different times. We tell the stories of actual people who lived in these tenements on the Lower East Side, and whether they were German or Italian or Polish or Greek. And the adults, for the most part, don't speak English. They didn't assimilate. They tended not to acculturate. And indeed, the, the underlying story we tell at the museum isn't a story of assimilation. It's the story of how people bringing their own values, bringing their own languages, uh, how they transformed this country. They didn't become the Americans whom they, they met when they got off the boat. We all became a people. Every generation of immigrants has changed who we are uh, and made us a stronger people in the process. Beautiful. So I want to ardently thank you, Morris, for joining us on the show. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Look, obviously, this court, the Supreme Court, is talking about national security and not religion, and they're drawing that line nice and neatly, which gives Trump his headroom on this travel ban. But but have we in the past uh, looked at immigrants and their threat status 
the place where national security and immigration comes together is usually in wartime, and you see this dramatically in World War One and in World War Two. In World War One, you've got all sorts of laws against especially German Americans, and you know this is when Americans really turn quite viciously against German Americans. At least one is lynched. This is when we rename Frankfurters, for example, and and really stop teaching German in schools. And for a while, you're not even supposed to listen to German orchestras. And then again, you see it in World War II with the internment of the Japanese on the West Coast in the Western segment of America. And what's interesting about that for this particular moment is you know, people have asked if this is unusual that Americans are supporting immigrants in this moment to the degree they are. And it is, in a sense, because in terms of the Japanese internment, for example, or attacks on the Germans in World War One, those were extraordinarily popular at large. You know, people were quite happy to intern Japanese and quite happy to turn on the Germans. That's not to say there weren't a few people who disagreed, but those were generally very popular at the time. We've sort of, I hope, learned from that, from later decisions that said Japanese internment was unconstitutional. Um, but maybe we haven't. Well, look, that, can I just say that history is an argument that never ends, it's often said, and I have heard about the Germans and the Japanese internment, and I've never heard how popular those policies were because it's not a thing spoken about in that way. We like to think it wasn't popular because we don't like to think of ourselves in the other way. That's fascinating. I mean, yeah, if I've you read the newspapers from the Japanese internment, the real complaint in the newspapers, especially the West Coast newspapers, are that it wasn't happening fast enough. Oh, my word. Not that it was happening, but that it wasn't happening fast enough. But you know what? That's a perfect <laughs> but, example. But remember- the shame of that internment. It's now a subject of shame. <laughs> I've never heard about how popular you say it was. But think about that. Think about living in that moment. There's just been an attack on Hawaii, on Pearl Harbor, and nobody knows what's coming next. Imagine being the president who didn't do that. The next time that the bombers came in and that that moment of terror, it's very easy to look back now and say, oh, man, we never should have done that. But at the time, the real impulse was to hunker down and protect America. Well, well, those are wars. And now we're dealing with what is still referred to as the war on terror, which, of course, stretches on seemingly without end. And without borders. Without borders. So in this period, it's the Muslims that are in the crosshairs. And that looks back, I think, to what Morris was saying, that this is really a question of who we are. Not who they are, who we are. Is this a moment when we say we must stand up for our principles? But are we they? That's the question. I mean, the point of America is that, in fact, there is no us and them, it's we. They come here and we become one thing. Even with this bold diversity, this notion of last best hope of mankind, last best hope of people on earth, if you'd pick both Jefferson and Lincoln, they both say the same thing, is this idea of we, the they becoming we. Thank you, Heather Cox Richardson. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Ron. Thank you, everybody, for joining Freak Out and Carry On. I feel confidence in carrying on after our colloquy today. Take care. See you next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. 
Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our intern is Chris Yulian. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.